0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC.
1: This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Ryan Wallace, a veterinary epidemiologist at CDC. We'll be discussing the use of oral rabies vaccination in stray dog populations. Welcome, Dr. Wallace. Hi, thank you for the opportunity to talk today. Okay, to start, what is rabies and what causes it? Rabies
0: is a virus. It's uh, called a a zoonotic disease, meaning it's it's a virus that can spread between people. And animals, uh, rabies is, is pretty unique in that it's almost universally fatal if you if you get it and you don't seek the right medical care, and uh, it also causes quite a few deaths globally. Fifty nine thousand people die from this virus every year. How many? Fifty nine thousand.
1: Okay, that's. Uh... Wow. Uh, In movies, we often see dogs with rabies foaming at the mouth. Um, Can you tell us more about the symptoms involved with rabies infection?
0: Yeah, rabies is a really unique virus. It's inoculated usually through a bite into into the body of any mammal, and it then tries to find a nerve, a a peripheral nerve. Uh, So you can imagine if you're bit in the hand or in the leg, uh, it's going to be in the tissue, it's going to find a nerve, and it gets inside, and then it moves really, really slowly towards the brain, Uh, again, towards the brain of a person or or a dog or any other mammal. It moves at about one centimeter per day. And eventually, when it reaches its end goal, the brain, it can replicate quite rapidly. And that's where it causes all sorts of unusual neurologic disorders that we tend to associate with rabies. So the, the foaming at the mouth is the viruses attempt to get more virus out so that it can infect the next animal through a, through a bite. Uh, it causes some discomfort in the throat so you don't swallow the saliva and more of it comes out and infects other animals and people. Uh, and, and then it also causes some pretty unique uh, uh, behavioral changes such as the aggression or uh, paralysis. Uh,
1: uh, uh, are bites the only way rabies is spread?
0: Bites are the primary way that rabies are spread, but there are two general uh, ways in which this virus can get into a person or, or an animal. And so we call those bite and non-bite um, exposures. Again, almost all rabies transmission, whether it's dog to dog or dog to human, is gonna be through a bite. But we also do know that it is possible for the virus to be spread by a scratch that's contaminated with saliva, mucous membranes, uh, very, very rarely inhalation of concentrated virus. We've only seen that in a laboratory setting. And then also organ transplantation. So you can imagine this virus is replicating in the nerves and can move throughout uh, most major organs in the body. If you don't know why someone died and transplant those organs into the next individual, uh, you can actually move the virus and, and to transmit the virus that way. All of those non fight modes of transmission are very rare. Uh, there are precautions to prevent them from happening, but by and large, the biggest concern and, and our biggest public health preventive actions are focused on preventing those bites.
1: I've actually done a podcast in the past about uh, rabies and organ transplants, um, and, I, and I knew somebody who went to a petting zoo and, and was told later they had to get rabies shots from petting. I guess they were concerned that those saliva was on one of the animals and it might get in a scratch.
0: Yeah, the virus can be is certainly found in saliva of of affected animals, and in rare situations, it can get into a scratch and find a virus, or into a mucous membrane like our eyes or mouth. Likewise, that virus would find find a uh, a nerve and get in, and, and then uh, move on towards the brain, which is what we want to try to prevent from happening. Uh, while those instances are very rare, these non-bite exposures are are, are very rare. It's 100% fatal disease, and so we don't want to take any risk if we know there's a possibility that someone was exposed. to any of these bite or non-bite methods.
1: Okay, so um, as you just said, if you get rabies, you're going to die from it. Um, so if it's left untreated, that's it. There's there's no chance you're going to live.
0: So there are approximately 15 known survivors of clinical rabies. So that 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 is if you uh, let's take a a little step back. Rabies is absolutely preventable through post-exposure prophylaxis or uh, vaccination. So we can that we can prevent this disease two ways in people. One is giving people we think are at higher risk of an exposure something called pre-exposure vaccination, and it's a series of of two to three vaccines depending on your local um, recommendations, and um, and, and that's really largely preventive. If you ever get exposed in the future, you need to get a booster. But we, we have very, very few failures of pre-exposure vaccination. But we don't do that for the general population. Uh, we, for the general population, it's, our preventive measures are based on recognizing that you've had an exposure, seeking healthcare, and then getting post-exposure prophylaxis. And again, when that's done in a, a timely and appropriate um, manner, failures are incredibly rare. Um, unfortunately, if you don't, if you are exposed and you don't get the appropriate vaccination and you do go on to develop clinical rabies, there's no known effective treatment. Uh, only 15 people globally have ever survived the clinical stage of rabies. And they have uh, largely all had pretty severe sequelae or, or pretty severe, um, long lasting, um, Um, medical issues from that infection. You can imagine 15 survivors ever out of 59,000 people that die of it every single year. Those are not odds that that anybody should want to play.
1: What's the timeline, say, you get and have an exposure to when you start having symptoms?
0: The virus moves fairly slow. uh, And so most of our incubation periods are going to be somewhere between three weeks and three months from exposure until when, when clinical signs will appear, but it's incredibly variable and, uh, there's a lot of biological processes that go into how long it's going to take from, from again, that exposure to developing clinical signs. You can imagine if you're bitten on the, on the foot by a rabid dog, that virus has to travel quite a long distance to get to the brain. And you're not going to see clinical signs until the virus is in the brain and, and replicating quite, quite fast. Uh, And in those situations, we've seen reports of of several years before people go on to develop clinical signs. That's very rare, but it does happen. Um, Alternatively, someone bitten on the head, the virus has a very short path, a very short distance to get to the brain where it wants to be. And we can see clinical signs develop as early as 14 days if you have a severe bite to the head
1: so fifty nine thousand people die of rabies each year globally, um, and apparently most of these cases are from domestic dogs. Uh, why is this, and why not some other animals like bats or cats
0: yeah the This virus is one of the oldest described zoonotic viruses uh, known to man there It goes back thousands of years with reports from from rabbit dogs transmitting this virus uh, in, in Mesopotamia um, you can imagine a, a virus that's had the opportunity to move in and out of different animal populations for thousands of years it's had quite a few evolutionary jumps uh, the biggest one that is the risk to people is when this virus jumped into dogs that's not necessarily because they transmit the virus any better but they are um, um, they have a very close association with people so dogs, you, they, they sleep in our beds, they're all over our communities. There's just a lot of interaction and opportunities for them to expose people uh, when you're in a, in a country that has the, the virus that spreads through dogs. Uh, whereas animals like bats and the uh, you know, United States, raccoons, skunks, foxes, uh, we don't interact with those animals quite as much. So even though the virus is found in a, in a lot of other wild mammals, uh, the, they, they keep the virus in their population, and it's, it's relatively rare that people interact with, with a sick, wild animal, and then that virus is transmitted.
1: What about cats? So rabies
0: virus can infect any mammal. You know, there's some stories out there that possums can't get rabies. That's not true. Possums can get it. Uh, they have some some biological defenses that make them a little bit less susceptible, but we have rabid possums in the United States almost every year. Um, but there, there are two cycles for this virus. So there's the reservoir cycle, the, the enzootic cycle that's always going on in the background with the, with the key species. So um, in most of the world, that's dogs. And the, there's a special version of this virus that is spread from dog to dog to dog. We can differentiate it with lab tests. We can see which type of virus this is. Um, any mammal can get that version of the virus and die, um, but it is maintained in the dog population.
1: I see. Okay. Um, where is it most common to find dogs with rabies?
0: Around 120 countries have the virus that's, that, that is spread from dog to dog, which we call the canine rabies virus variant. Um, now, the the level of endemicity, how bad it is, can really vary quite a bit between these countries. Some are, are very close to elimination and doing very, very um, strong, running very strong control programs, and others are still at the very beginning stages of of elimination. and, and Rabbit dogs are unfortunately quite common. Uh, India has the highest number of human rabies deaths globally, uh, but it's also a very large country, and they, they have some pretty strong control programs that are being implemented now. But uh, if we look at, like, a, a rate or, say, risk of, of rabies in a biting dog, most countries in sub-Saharan Africa are, are heavily endemic, and then Southeast Asia has a very high rate of rabies as well. Uh,
1: so how effective are the pre- uh, and post-vaccines? Uh, um, are they different? Or are they the same? Um, and, and, and do they have the same efficacy?
0: Yeah, so today, pretty standard across the globe, we use cell culture vaccines, which are highly, highly efficacious. They work really, really well. Uh, there are two different regimens that we we use. Pre-exposure vaccinations, if you're traveling to another country and you're worried you might become exposed, uh, is, a, is a simplified version of the vaccination series. And it's really, really efficacious on its own, but just to be 100% certain, you don't get rabies if you do become exposed in these countries, there is still a booster recommendation. So just because you're pre-exposure vaccinated doesn't mean you don't have to do anything if you are bitten by a dog or or a bat. You still have to go seek medical care, wash that wound and and get your booster vaccinations, but it's a much more simplified process. Post-exposure vaccination can range anywhere from three to five vaccines depending on the country you're in and then rabies immune globulin, And that's a, a process that provides both passive and active immunity since we know you were exposed and potentially susceptible. When these are given um, appropriately and, and per international standards, they're almost 100% effective. If failures by either regimen are incredibly rare.
1: Okay, so I, I think you already said this there. There's basically just one type of vaccine in terms of what goes into it for each type. Is that right?
0: Yeah. In general, they're referred to as cell culture vaccines, and they're really standard all across the world right now. Uh, you know, several decades ago, there was something called nerve tissue vaccines. And it's probably what a lot of people picture from the movies when, when you get 13 shots in the stomach and, uh, and, and it's a really painful process. Those vaccines are not used anymore. WHO has come out and Uh, recommended their complete discontinuation across the globe. They had a pretty high rate of of adverse events, and the cell culture vaccines are much more effective and much safer. The nerve tissue vaccines are hardly ever used, be very uncommon to come across them. Um, And and if you do, you you should really question what you're getting and and contact a health official to make sure you're getting high-quality vaccines.
1: So people traveling to a high-risk area, as we said, they can get a a pre-exposure vaccination. Um, And dogs get vaccines for rabies, at least in the U.S., every year. Um, Are these two vaccines different?
0: The two vaccines are actually quite similar in that they are going to be cell uh, culture-killed vaccines, but they're formulated and processed a little bit differently. Uh, All vaccines need to be not only developed for their target species, but also the studies that go into how effective they are, the dose that's given, the the frequency that they're given, they are are all based on species-specific studies. And so the the vaccines that we use in people, while structurally they're they're very similar, they are slightly different, they're produced in a different way, uh, and and they're only studied for efficacy in, in people. Uh, so you wouldn't want to go, if you were exposed to a rabid animal, you wouldn't want to go get a dog vaccine. There, there would be no data to say whether that's going to be effective in a person. Um, likewise for animals, they shouldn't be getting people, you know, human vaccines.
1: Okay. All right. So um, people seem to need just this one series of rabies vaccines, plus a booster if you get bitten. Um, but dogs are supposed to get one every year. Why do dogs need to get one every year?
0: Yeah, there's, there's a couple of reasons for why that, that, that is the state of the world. Um, the first, is, is based on the studies that are done to obtain licensure. Uh, the recommendations for people or animals are going to be based on how the manufacturers have designed their studies. And there's a lot of, a lot of reasons why the certain uh, vaccine regimens are, are studied a certain way and, and recommended a certain way. But it all comes down to there has to be data for us to make our decisions on frequency, route, dose. All of those things are based on, on data-derived decisions. The, the big reason why particularly dogs get the vaccine almost every year, um, depending on what, what version you use, uh, is, is that dogs we're vaccinating dogs for a different reason than we vaccinate people. Dogs are a known reservoir species. They can transmit this virus quite effectively. So by vaccinating dogs, they're our frontline defense against people getting, getting this disease. And that security and and confidence that we've got that frontline defense vaccinated really requires annual or in in certain situations with with, uh, uh, newer three-year vaccines every three-year vaccination. But it's routine vaccination in our high-risk susceptible species um, and and that provides a nice buffer to keep people from becoming exposed.
1: Um, So your study was about um, oral vaccines and and stray dogs. So how do you get oral vaccine. Well, how do you get vaccines to stray dogs? Um, Period. It's
0: incredibly challenging. Uh, There are two ways we can vaccinate dogs. We we have what we call parenteral vaccines. This is the normal needle and syringe. You have to restrain the dog. Um, You know, it goes into the muscle and um, and then that dog becomes vaccinated. The other option are oral vaccines, and this is where you can put the, the vaccine in a, in a little bait, and then you feed the dog, and when it ingests that bait, it becomes exposed to the vaccine and, and develops the appropriate immune response. So you can imagine stray dogs aren't really used to people handling them. They're not used to receiving veterinary care, and you can expend a lot of time chasing these dogs down with nets and catch poles. Um, and, and trying, to, trying to confine them and get that shot in. Or with the use of oral vaccines, we can just feed them. And uh, you, obviously, one of those requires a lot of effort and can be really expensive with a lot of um, really well-trained staff. And the other one is quite easy and, and people might even just volunteer to go feed dogs since it's something a lot of us like to do.
1: So uh, tell us a little bit about the oral vaccine itself. What does it look like? Um, you know, how do you get it in the food? I mean,
0: they, uh, they have a, a matrix around them. We call it a, a bait matrix. And that, is, that has two functions. The first is it protects the vaccine that's inside, but it also has the flavor that hopefully is going to attract that animal to, to come in and actually want to put this, this, this vaccine in its mouth. Within the bait matrix, there's usually a little, little sachet. It can be made of light plastic or some other you know, food-safe materials, and that holds a liquid vaccine. So the whole process of, of orally vaccinating an animal requires that the animal wants to put this bait in its mouth. So it has to be a flavor in that bait matrix that they, they want to ingest. It has to chew it so that it punctures the liquid sachet. And then that liquid vaccine inside of it has to coat the inside of the mouth. And one of the concerns about using oral vaccines is that all three of those steps have to happen to successfully vaccinate the dog. And so there are a lot more considerations into planning a vaccination campaign that includes oral vaccine and, um, and the type of vaccine you're going to use in a certain country. Uh, not all dogs like the same flavors in Thailand. There was a study that found that they really liked a curry flavored uh, bait matrix, <laughs> which is kind of hard to find these days. Uh, we did one in haiti and, and they very much preferred pig intestines uh, that 's the one they all wanted all those dogs wanted to eat. Um, other studies have found that cheese is the preferred preferred bait uh, bait flavor, and others have found fish so uh, there there 's this added complexity that you have to sort of tailor the flavor to the local dog population. And it'll probably reflect what they're used to eating uh, with these being stray dogs, probably what they're used to what their human counterparts in the community leave out for for food and, and rubbish. Um, and then the the dog has to be able to puncture it. So if you make your bait too thick, that bait matrix is too thick or the bait's just too large in general and they can't put it in their mouth you're not gonna get the vaccine into the oral cavity and, and the vaccination will fail as well. So there's a lot of other considerations. You have to be pretty smart in how you plan and prepare these things, but the alternative of, of chasing dogs down with nets, oral vaccines look quite, uh, quite favorable.
1: Yeah, so going back to these little uh, sachets, um, yeah, my dogs get the, of course, the, the monthly chewable heartworm, etc., and they hate them. <laughs> <laughs> They're supposed to be delicious to dogs. I have to pulverize them and then mix them well with their other food for them to eat them. So what have you found works best for dogs, not just the flavor, uh, but in what? So in, in what? like canned dog food, or or are you, are you just trying to get them to eat it on its own? I'm not quite sure what we're saying here.
0: Yeah, that, it's a it's a really good question, and and one that the rabies community and vaccine manufacturers are still still studying. Because I'll, I'll go back to the the study we did in in Haiti back in two thousand sixteen. We we used an oral vaccine to try to get a lot of these stray dogs to stop an outbreak that was occurring, and um, they loved pig intestines. So we could put the sachet, that plastic liquid bait. Into, the, into a pig intestine and then go out and, and feed all the dogs, and, and they got vaccinated, and it works quite well. But you can't mass produce you know, pig intestines. That, that's not something we could we can make millions of those bait matrices and, and, and vaccines and, and distribute them across the world for everyone to use. Um, so manufacturers are uh, currently working on trying to identify a universal bait flavor and universal bait matrix, and there are a couple of good prospects. Um, egg flavor seems to be generally universally liked by dogs, uh, but there are always, in the more we study this, the, the process of oral vaccination and, um, and, and get out and do field trials, there, there are always exceptions. And I think that Thailand one's probably the most interesting. I mean, who would have thought that dogs would prefer a curry-flavored bait, but that's what they were used to eating um, from, from people in the community, and, and that's what worked best.
1: Yeah, this is this is really fascinating because I've we've, EID's done articles about um, orally vaccinating raccoons, and I've actually done a podcast on that. Um, and this that's being discriminating uh, didn't come up, and you don't really think of stray dogs as being discriminating either. So this is really interesting.
0: So the spectrum of of the term stray dog is really wide as well. In Haiti, their stray dogs are loosely owned. Largely, they're loosely owned. They, they belong to a community. Uh, someone cares for them, but they're really living off of the scraps and garbage left behind. And they would probably eat almost any of the baits that we, we, um, we might have tried there. But in other settings, stray dogs are really well cared for by communities. They're, they're given you know, food uh, every day by people in the community. People leave leftover dishes out. They can be really well fed. We've been in communities in, in Bangladesh and in Vietnam where, where these dogs are, are really well fed and taken care of. You never know; they're they're unowned or community owned dogs, and they can be quite picky.
1: Okay, so um, with these oral rabies vaccines with dogs, um, is it are there side effects? Or I mean, I, I know in people there's been issues with some, some oral vaccines with smallpox and and polio mass vaccination programs. Um, There's nothing like that you've seen with these um, oral ones for these dogs? So it's a, there's no
0: blanket universal answer to that. It's, uh, oral vaccines, there there are a lot of different ways to produce and manufacture oral vaccines. And there's a long history of of oral vaccine use, not not just for rabies, but for for numerous other diseases like you just mentioned. Uh, So we were, Again, to go back, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, and look at the safety profile of some proposed oral vaccines um, for for rabies. Some of them actually failed safety review, and there were the organizations like WHO and, and OIE, the, the World Health organization, organization for animals, that came out against the use of of certain oral vaccine products because there were some pretty major concerns about um, about their ability to to cause adverse events or even revert back to a virulent state. Luckily, the process for attenuating and modifying viruses to make a, an effective vaccine these days are, are much, much better. And so there are several products that are being proposed and, and even several that are being used in field trials right now that have been thoroughly assessed by WHO, Hawaii, uh, groups like mine at CDC, and, and largely found to be highly efficacious and incredibly safe. Um, but the, 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 be- the best answer to that question is that every, every time you're going to use a live vectored vaccine, you need, to, you need to do a thorough safety evaluation of that product. Um, and, and ideally look to your international organizations like WHO and OIE to see if they've reviewed these products and if they, they have um, you know, provided their safety assessments.
1: Are oral vaccines expensive when you have a mass vaccination program? Who pays for it? I'm talking about rabies. Are there any U.S. government funded programs? Um, So, yes, they are expensive, uh, comparably expensive.
0: And it's a a nuanced question. uh, Well, it's a good question. It's a nuanced answer. Uh, A lot of different factors go into the cost of vaccinating a dog. And so if we look at the standard shot, the injectable shot that most dogs get these days, the vaccine itself costs less than a dollar, you know, 50 cents or less in in most settings if you're using high quality um, vaccine. But the average cost, full cost of vaccinating a dog is over $2. So the majority of the cost of vaccinating a dog is actually in the logistics, it's in the staff, it's in the cold chain, um, it's in the consumables. It's not actually the vaccine itself. Oral vaccines, on the other hand, while they're not widely available yet, they'll probably cost somewhere between 2 and $4 just for the vaccine. So quite a bit more expensive than parenteral vaccines. But from what we've seen from, from our field trials and, um, and, and our experience in the field is that the, the surrounding cost can go down quite a bit. We, we can vaccinate more dogs faster with oral vaccines, than we can with parental vaccine, especially when we're talking about stray dogs. And so you've got this balance of um, parental vaccines, the vaccine itself is cheaper, but your staff costs are probably gonna be higher because it's more effort to go and vaccinate those dogs. Oral vaccines, the vaccine cost is much higher, but the staff costs we expect to be quite a bit lower because you can do more dogs in a day.
1: Going back to something you said earlier about people just in the community feeding the dogs with these vaccines so is that part of what's being done it's not just health uh, public health workers out there feeding dogs but is this uh, are there vaccines given to community members to hand out to these dogs
0: not yet and that's not the recommended way to use oral vaccines right now but we are at the very infancy of of the of developing programs that will include oral vaccines as one of the strategies. It's kind of crazy. We we've been using oral vaccines to control rabies in wildlife for decades. Uh, Hundreds of millions of oral vaccines have been distributed for control of red fox rabies in Europe and uh, raccoon rabies and coyote rabies here in the United States. But we don't have it as a tool, a standard tool for control of, Rabies and dogs, which causes you know, 59,000 or more human deaths every year. So the, the 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 paper that that was published in December is really uh, about uh, getting some of the set, setting some of the facts straight about h- how these vaccines should be incorporated into standard dog vaccination programs, particularly in, in canine rabies endemic countries. Um, and, and tries to focus some of the attention on where, there's gonna, where they will truly benefit and aid a vaccination program.
1: So uh, tell us about the global strategic plan for eliminating rabies death in people caused by dogs.
0: Yes, yeah, so this was a initiative developed back in 2015. Um, there are, are, are three main international organizations are supporting this initiative. That's WHO, World Health Organization, OIE, and then FAO. Uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and they are providing a, an overarching structure and gathering government and international agency support to try to eliminate dog-mediated human rabies deaths by the year 2030. And so, so clearly, vaccinating dogs is going to be a huge component of of the um, uh, of the plan to to reach this 2030 goal, but also included in that is post-exposure prophylaxis and pre-exposure prophylaxis for people
1: are you optimistic about this plan um actually being achieved by 2030 i think any
0: any any program any any large scale elimination or eradication goal it has to start somewhere we we can't just say it needs to be eliminated that could happen you know in 50 or 100 years if, if we don't set a date so setting a target puts expectations on endemic countries' governments. It puts expectations on international agencies and and donor governments that are going to ideally support this goal. Uh, It also allows us to start more effectively planning how we would even approach something like um, global elimination of rabies or elimination of dog-needed human rabies. Um, We still have, you know, nine years left to see where we get by 2030. I think um, this is probably uh, a a goal that will go on for, for quite a while because countries are at different stages. But uh, I think it was quite, quite, um, quite bold and ambitious and, and really, really good that these international agencies established the goal, set a date, and they are putting down real strategic plans for how we can uh, help other countries address, address this uh, I mean, really significant public health issue.
1: So what factors need to be considered for creating effective rabies vaccination campaigns?
0: The number one consideration really needs to be the type of dogs that you have. There are some countries where we can use really easy methods of vaccination. Um, So picture uh, like brick and mortar veterinary clinics and and people just bring their dogs in and a veterinarian gives them a shot and then then they go home in their cars. There are settings like that, communities and in whole countries where that's totally possible. And, you need to know what types of dogs you have. So if you have those types of dogs, we're gonna design a very different type of vaccination program than we would if you have a lot of dogs that are, are free roaming or unowned or uh, just a, a population of dogs where people aren't used to providing veterinary care and, and can't put them on a leash and, and walk them somewhere. So underst- putting in some effort, doesn't need to be a lot of effort and it doesn't need to delay your implementation, but putting in some effort to understand the types of dogs and the quantity of dogs is going to allow you to, to design a much more effective, a much more efficient vaccination campaign. And then when you run into situations where there's either a country or a community where there are a lot of stray dogs or dogs that aren't easily accessible by uh, a routine vaccinator, these are the situations where oral vaccines are going to become much more important and it's going to be... And, um, going to make a much more efficient campaign and a much more effective campaign if we had that oral rabies as as a tool to get those particular types of dogs.
1: I think you already touched on this a little bit, but why did you write this report and what are the most important public health messages in it that you want to get out there?
0: This report's really important because it's the first time that our two major international organizations, OIE and WHO, have come together with an aligned statement uh, in support of the effective and safe use of oral rabies vaccines. There have been statements and and publications and and guidance documents developed over the last 30 years um, that are reflective of the knowledge of oral rabies vaccines at the time, but have not truly been aligned nor fully supportive of how oral vaccines should be used to control canine rabies. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's very exciting. This is the first time where we've really sat down with these partners and global experts in the field and, and really detailed exactly how these can be used, exactly what the barriers are and how to overcome them, and really put out there that, that we all recognize in the right place, under the right conditions, oral vaccines do have a role in canine rabies elimination. Uh, and, and we need to start stoking the the international community, the manufacturers, the governments of these endemic countries to recognize when the appropriate place is and how they can access them and really push this 2030 goal closer to fruition.
1: How can we protect our pets and ourselves?
0: So the, the best way to protect our pets is to keep them up to date on their rabies vaccinations. Uh, and uh, you know, likewise, the best way to protect us is to keep our pets updated on their rabies <laughs> vaccinations. They are our frontline defense Our dogs and our cats and and other susceptible species, depending on um, where your listeners are are tuning in from, uh, they're the ones that are are most likely going to come into contact with a a rabid animal, um, you know, be that out in the wild or be that a rabid dog, and you don't want them bringing that virus home to you or your kids. So keeping them vaccinated is that that frontline protection. And then if you do, unfortunately, become exposed, post-exposure prophylaxis is highly effective. It's a really simple regimen. It's no longer 13 shots in the stomach. It's just, just like getting your flu vaccine, except you need to get a, a couple extra. Um, but, but it's really simple, quite painless, and extremely effective. And so making sure that, uh, that you're aware of what an exposure is, that you seek medical care, and that you get your vaccines when indicated is our second line of defense and, and very important.
1: Okay, so, if a person does get bitten by a stray dog, they need to get vaccinated. But exactly, what's the process? I mean, wash their hands immediately. Call nine one one. What exactly should a person do?
0: Okay, if you think you've had a rabies exposure, for this scenario, let's say it's a it's a bite from a dog you think has rabies or could have rabies. The the first step is to go wash that wound with soap and running water for at least fifteen minutes. There's a there's a really positive effect of washing that virus out if you can do it quickly and then the next step is getting to um, some medical care so you're going to need to go find a, a your doctor or a pep clinic and there's going to be not only a, a evaluation of the wound and maybe some wound care but also a, a risk assessment and that risk assessment is going to look at the so they're going to they're ask you questions about the type of animal that bit you the, the circumstances of that bite what were you doing with the animal when it bit you the vaccination history. Um, they'll probably ask if the animal is available to be quarantined. Um, and that can be done in home or at a special facility. And they'll observe the animal for 10 to 14 days just to make sure it stays healthy. Uh, or if it's a wildlife or, or suspect rabbit animal, they're going to probably try to assess if they can test that animal and get a diagnosis, you know, tell you if it actually did have rabies. And all of those factors are going to go into a decision on whether or not you should get. The rabies vaccination series that we've been calling post-exposure prophylaxis in a heavily endemic country a lot of these exposures are going to clearly be a risk and you're going to start your vaccination series right away Uh, when you are in a situation where rabies is is much better controlled you have a little bit more time to look at the whole situation Um, maybe wait for a test result for a few days maybe wait for the outcome of a quarantine if it's a healthy known dog and, and then make your PEP decision based on those outcomes.
1: What are the biggest challenges to eliminating rabies um, in people from dog bites?
0: So that, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, maybe the, I'll, I'll answer it backwards. So we have the tool to eliminate rabies in dogs. There are numerous countries that have eliminated dog to dog transmission of rabies or the canine rabies virus variant. Um, We have the methods. We have a lot of pilot studies that have shown you can eliminate eliminate this virus even in low- and middle-income countries. Um, But what we haven't seen and what I think is probably the biggest barrier is the sustained commitment that's required to truly eliminate a disease. Um, Whether we're talking about elimination in a community or a country or globally, elimination is a big word. It's not something where you do one campaign and and the virus is magically gone. That's not how this works. And um, it, it really takes strong commitment. Um, it does take funding. It takes a skilled workforce. And it's something that, that each country that decides to take on this goal, they'll probably be vaccinating dogs for the next five to ten years before it's truly gone. And then even after it's gone, you need to look at your neighbor and see if your neighbor got rid of it. And if your neighbor didn't get rid of it, and they might be, you know, unfortunately – inadvertently sending rabid dogs back into your country, you're going to need to keep up some level of vaccination. Um, so I, I think the biggest barrier is, is the ability to operate sustainable programs for a zoonotic disease in low- and middle-income countries. That's a huge challenge, it's a huge barrier. Definitely is going to require international um, assistance. It's going to require governments from uh, countries that have eliminated canine rabies already to, to really step up and help provide support to, to these countries that are heavily affected.
1: Are there any actions or further studies that you'd like to see at this point? The the
0: big question right now is largely on logistics. How do we scale up very successful pilot programs? Uh, What are the technical resources that are needed, the funding that's needed? Uh, How do you operationalize an effective campaign in a lower-middle-income country to be something that is scalable? I think that's the big gap right now, and we're looking for strong examples of how that was done. If we... Go back to oral vaccines uh, specifically. Uh, I think one of the biggest questions right now is: Is there a universal bait flavor, and how can we mass produce these uh, these vaccines? Uh, we, we can't make a, a curry flavored vaccine for for use in Thailand and a you know, pig intestine flavored bait for for use in in Haiti. The, the manufacturing for that's probably um, the manufacturing that would be required to. To have that type of differentiation just doesn't exist right now. So identifying a universal flavor and getting it to a stage where we can mass produce, um, mass manufacture, I think is a is a, um, a, big, uh, a big need right now. And we, we know there are some groups that are working on it. Um, and I think overcoming the stigma of, of oral vaccines. Um, for, for decades, there have been major concerns, legitimate concerns, about the safety of these vaccines how do we get governments and community members and dog owners to understand that new methods of creating these vaccines have made them very safe and very effective Um, and so we're overcoming we need to overcome these several decades of of messaging and because that messaging has changed
1: Um, so do you and your co-authors in this report have any recommendations for um, implementing uh, oral vaccines for dogs
0: yeah, we, we do. We we provide a summary of of recommendations that countries should should to um, go through before they try to implement the oral vaccines into their vaccination program, and these are derived from um, several other pivotal oral rabies vaccine guidance documents produced by WHO and LIE. Uh, and, and so they, I guess, I won't list list them all for you here. You can go to the article if you want to see. I think all. I think there might be thirteen steps that country should take. Uh, but in general, you want a surveillance system that can detect exposures, uh, unintended exposures. So if you're going to use a modified live vectored vaccine, we need to have infrastructure in place to know if people have made contact with it. And while these vaccines, any vaccine that has been evaluated and found to be very safe, there are still very, very low risks that there could be an adverse event, and we want to be able to detect when those exposures occur and make sure that we can provide appropriate public health reactions. So that that's a big piece of infrastructure that needs to be in place if you're going to think about using the oral vaccine. Uh, and then it's the assessment of your dog population. You, 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 these are not inexpensive vaccines, and they're not widely available yet. And so you want to make sure you're using them correctly. So you need to understand your dog population, it, which. Back, which dogs you're going to target with oral vaccine. And then uh, are you using the right bait flavor and the right bait construct?
1: Dr. Wallace, tell us about your work now and what you enjoy most about it.
0: Well, my work for the last 11 months has actually been doing COVID response. And I think that's what we're seeing across the, across the globe. A lot of people that are traditionally running rabies vaccination programs are now being pulled in to, to help with the pandemic response. Um, it's great that a lot of our colleagues and partners around the world have been able to help out on this and use their experience controlling a similar zoonotic disease um, to help help um, with with pandemic efforts. But it does it does raise a major concern about how we're going to sustain the successes that have been made in controlling canine rabies if our workforce is diverted. And if a lot of these programs are like dog vaccination are, are put on hold for a year or two while we're uh, addressing safety concerns and making sure that our teams can go out and do this safely. So I think there's a, the next year or two is going to be um, um, very important to ensure that we're maintaining dog vaccination programs, but um, we need to make sure we're doing it safely and that we're doing it in the context of the priorities of the
1: government's. I heard a dog barking earlier, Do you, so you obviously have at least a dog. Do you have any other pets you want to tell us about them?
0: I have a lot of pets. Um, I have four fish tanks uh, that have a different variety of freshwater fish. Um, I have two lion's head rabbits that my, my two daughters take care of, and I have two dogs, uh, both rescues. One, um, one actually looks like a a Haitian street dog, even though it was found here in DeKalb County, Georgia, but the similarities are, are quite strange. When I look at pictures of myself in the field faxing all these dogs, you would not be able to tell if I was holding my own dog or, or one of those dogs from Haiti. Uh, and then and then another elderly rescue dog we we picked up from a rescue organization.
1: I also have two dogs and two rabbits. That's interesting, but not the four fish tanks.
0: <laughs> if you want one or two, I can I can I can send them over.
1: <laughs> they wouldn't survive. Um, Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Wallace. No problem.
0: Thank you for highlighting this article and the the 2030 goal and and all the really good work that our partners around the world are doing. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk.
1: And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the December 2020 article, Role of Oral Rabies Vaccines in the Elimination of Dog-Mediated Human Rabies Deaths. Online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. If you enjoyed this program,